Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us on this 4th of July. hope you're having a good celebration on this Independence Day and a safe one. Please be very, very careful. Joining us on our holiday is the Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation, John Newton. John, happy 4th of July to you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I know at Farm Bureau you often do surveys like at Thanksgiving time and compare the cost of the Thanksgiving meal uh, in a particular year to the previous year. You've done it this year with the Fourth uh, of July barbecue. Uh, what did the survey show? Well, you know, we had volunteer Farm Bureau member shoppers uh, from around the country, 34 states, uh, go out to their local supermarkets and survey the cost of all the staple ingredients for a July 4th cookout. And what our volunteer shoppers found was that the average cost of a 4th of July cookout for 10 uh, was $52.80. That was up less than a quarter of 1%, or about 11 cents compared uh, to year-ago levels. And when we look at this survey over the last five years, uh, we find that food prices have been very, very affordable uh, and and helped to keep that cost of July 4th meal uh, affordable to U.S. consumers. Something that that too often, I'm afraid, in this country, people take for granted. We need to uh, keep this in mind, how fortunate we are to have the food supply that we do at the price that it is, and thankful for those uh, farmers and ranchers, those producers out there that make that possible. You know, there's there's two things to that, Mike. First, you know, we have these low food prices at the grocery store because, you know, the farm economy is in pretty tough shape. Uh, crop prices and livestock prices have been low for a number of years. That's why it's so affordable to put this meal together uh, today for the 4th of July. Uh, But secondly, you know, we do need to think of farmers. Less than 2% of the population uh, in the United States grows the food, fiber, and fuels uh, that we rely on. Uh, And it's these farmers and ranchers to help put the food on the table this 4th of July. We're talking with John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. John, this has been such a challenging year with late planning in some cases, in many cases, no planning at all. Um, what are your thoughts on those prevent plant acres uh, you know, and the uh, the cost of them? We're just we're still trying to get uh, in a, a complete assessment of that, but the, we know the number is going to be very, very high. You know, first thing is, is to thank the department for putting some much-needed flexibility on the use of cover crops. Uh, we had a lot of members across the country uh, really concerned about the availability of feed because they couldn't get a crop in the ground. And so uh, USDA extending that flexibility was fantastic. Uh, we hope they can find uh, that same flexibility with respect to the 2020 uh, enterprise rule that, that could ultimately lead to crop insurance prices doubling for some folks. Uh, but you're right. Uh, Undersecretary Northey said uh, he could expect prevent planet payments over a billion dollars. Uh, the expectation is we could see a record 10 million acres prevented from being planted uh, this year due to those late, uh, early early spring rains and flooding and then the, the persistent rainfall uh, all year. But even with that, USDA's latest acreage projection was much higher than um, many had expected. And even though the number, we, because the survey was done June 1st, uh, it was discounted by many, still it had quite a, uh, a bearish trade reaction. 
Well, I'm going to light some fireworks uh, later today uh, here, but but I think USDA lit some fireworks last Friday. Uh, most people in the trade had expected the acreage number to come in around 86 million acres. Uh, and when USDA announced 91.7 million acres, uh, we saw corn prices drop by nearly 20 cents. Uh, that took $2.6 billion uh, off the table for new crop corn. So it's, it's pretty concerning uh, to, to see that number out there. And I, I think one of the main things it does is it creates more uncertainty. Uh, you know, we're going to watch the yields, but without knowing how many acres we have, uh, we don't know what crop we're, we're, we're going to have on our hands this year, and that's going to make prices real hard to predict. Do you wish USDA had not even released that report or at least delayed it some? You know, this is this is a year, uh, unprecedented year, you know, with historic delays in planting. And I think when we just talked about RMA doing some things to provide some flexibility to growers, uh, maybe that's something they, they, they could have considered. Uh, when you look at the report, you notice that they're already planning to resurvey 14 states, those farmers in those 14 states, on what their acreage for corn, soybeans, and sorghum is. Uh, and, and given, you know, the, the magnitude of this number and how it impacts the markets, uh, maybe some consideration should have been made, and maybe it was uh, to delay that report. So, you know, it's certainly, when you see that type of price response, uh, very concerning. Well, John, here we are into July. Uh, what are you hearing on uh, the market facilitation program payments and and uh, the details? What few we have, what information we have as we wait for more details? What are you hearing? Well, details are starting to trickle in uh, from from across the country. What we know, they're going to make that planning based on uh, that make make that payment based on uh, acreage planted in 2019. They're going to announce a county-level rate that's going to be based on the his- historic crop plantings uh, in a particular county. Uh, so, so we know that at this point. What we don't know yet are what those county payment rates are going to be. And, and we've, we've suggested that they, the department look at the changes that were made in the 18 Farm Bill uh, with respect to Art County uh, when they set those payment, county-level payments up uh, to avoid you know, any large discrepancies across county lines uh, maybe think about splitting up some of these larger counties across the U.S. Uh, ultimately, I, I know at the end of the day, because it's a county-level payment, we're going to have some folks uh, that aren't going to be happy when their county comes in a lot lower than, than somebody else across the country. And that's just the nature of a county-level trade assistance package. Meanwhile, uh, dairy producers, many of them are signing up for the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. Um, what are your thoughts on that and, and the participation we're seeing so far? Well, I think, you know, we saw pretty pretty strong participation, about 5,000 farms signed up, you know, thus far. Uh, I think when you look at the Tier 1 coverage, uh, 950 coverage option, when you look at the adjustments that were made uh, to alfalfa hay prices on that margin, it's a no-brainer uh, for Tier 1 coverage at 950. Uh, I'd even consider, you know, 950 over the full five years. Uh, that's how strong of a safety debt risk management tool uh, the new DMC is going to be for that Tier 1 coverage. Uh, but what I do think is, given where we are on on the on the crop market uncertainty, there is some value to waiting uh, before picking a tier two coverage level for those big farms. If we see feed prices move higher uh, and any weakness in the milk markets, then we could be looking at DMC margins triggering uh, at some of those tier two levels that make those an attractive option. So I think that's why some folks may be waiting until the deadline uh, to to make that DMC decision. What is your outlook for for the dairy price? 
you know, markets have improved. We're seeing milk production uh, starting to slow down, so that's that's certainly uh, a, a good thing. But but the cost, uh, you know, feed costs are, are likely going to go up. Uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, corn prices rise, uh, and you know, the availability of, of silage and uh, other feed for livestock could be, you know, uh, something that people need to figure out. That's that's why the RMA cover crop rule was so important. So. Uh, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty, and, and as you know, you know things can change uh, in a hurry. And so it's important to monitor the markets and be proactive in managing your risk. Uh, that's why the DRP program we have is so valuable, because it's something you can utilize every single day. John, thanks for being with us. Happy Fourth of July. Thanks a lot, Mike. John Newton, Chief Economist for the American Farm Bureau. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. You know, very unlikely doesn't mean not. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So uh, I'd say if there's a, you know, a swim chance in there or a glimmer of hope that we can grab onto and uh, hopefully push them a little harder. And, you know, it's going to take help, though. We got we to gotta have a lot of folks uh, pushing this thing and, you know, making sure that they want to they wanna move this now and, and not wait for that after that August recess. So, you know, like I said, hopefully we can get folks motivated to, to pass USMCA, and we're going to be working hard as NCGA and myself and others to uh, make sure we're out there doing the job and, and pushing them. But um, it's it's going to take a lot more effort than that, too, to, to, to get these guys to move off a, of off a center on this one. Hopefully some positives will be coming soon. Thank you very much for the update. Appreciate it. Hey, glad to be on this morning. Thanks a lot. Take care, Kevin. Kevin Ross, President-elect of the National Corn Growers Association. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after Dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to InventHelp. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back to Adams on Agriculture on this 4th of July. And I hope you're having a wonderful, safe holiday. Please be very, very careful. Well, thanks again for letting us to be part of your day. You know, recently the House Ag Spending Bill passed, which included an increase in annual funding for the Veterinary Medicine Loan Repayment Program by $1 to $9 million. Now, that increase would help the program put more food animal veterinarians in rural areas and help close the gaps we're seeing in veterinary access. Those gaps have been increasing over the past several years. There's a real need out in the countryside for more food animal veterinarians. Now, the American Veterinary Medical Association worked very closely with the members of the House to secure those funding increases in the House Ag Spending Bill, and now they turn their attention to the Senate, where they, where they will work with senators to try to uh, get that included in their spending bill. I talked recently about that effort and the importance of this funding with Dr. John DeYoung. He is president of the American Veterinary Medical Association. Hey, Mike, great to be with you again. Um, yeah, we got great news. Uh, we just got an additional million dollars in funding for the Veterinary Medicine uh, medicine Loan Repayment Enhancement Act, which um, is basically, they've, it's a step towards it, but they've given us additional funding, which means that we can send more veterinarians to underserved areas, primarily in rural America, to serve food animal producing animals and the farmers that take care of them, as well as public health needs. And so, you know, that that's just a huge step. It means that our, our elected officials in Washington are hearing us, realizing that there is a need for good veterinary care, and that if we do not step up to the plate, we put a lot of things potentially in jeopardy as well as the economy. But as far as food animal production, animals um, being well cared for and getting to market, that could be a problem. So, you know, for all the people, including local legislators in your neck of the woods that we talked about last time, they've been so helpful. We're getting there. The Enhancement Act will also remove the tax burden that veterinarians have that other healthcare professionals do not have. Um, and if we can get that push forward, that would be even a bigger step towards attracting more people that want to retire their student debt by basically taking advantage of this wonderful uh, program. How much support for this do you have in the Senate? Um, we've got some. We could always get some more. We haven't been able to get the Enhancement Act through in the past, which is to get rid of the tax burden, which other health care professionals don't have. But as far as getting the additional funding, I think we're, uh, we're on pretty solid ground but I couldn't give you a definitive answer because nobody knows what's going to happen in Washington from one day to the next. That's true. Uh, if this does pass and if you get this uh, through, how much will it help address the, the situation with the shortage of veterinarians in this country? Well, it's about a 16% increase or something like that. It, it, it's from uh, $8 million and $9 million is the figure that I believe I've got. Um, so <clears throat> just do the math. I mean, that's going to it's, it's, we're far away from where we really need to be. I mean, the reality is that it's, it's tough for veterinarians to sustain making a living given the uh, continuously mounting student debt that they're graduating with 
and then also going to areas where economically it's hard to really make a, a good living. And so there's an urbanization going on. But everything we can do to continue to send veterinarians to uh, rural areas where they're so badly needed, but at the same time, let them realize that they're, they're needed there, that there's a decent quality of life, that they can make a good living. Um, it's a big step in the right direction at trying to, to balance out the, the problems that we face as far as seeing an attrition of, of veterinarians from rural communities. How serious is the shortage of veterinarians in this country? Um, it depends who you talk to, and it's hard to say. Um, I can tell you that I'm a companion animal practitioner in Boston, Massachusetts. We just hired somebody, but it was very hard to find somebody. Um, the actual workforce issues that we're facing, and again, it depends who you talk to, are somewhat real. Um, <clears throat> there are more and more people based on work-life balance that are working somewhat less hours looking for a more comfortable lifestyle. <clears throat> the reality is food animal, rural animal practice is hard work, and um, it's, it's a, seemingly increasingly difficult to find people that are willing to undertake that. Um, and so uh, there's no question that if you were to ask at least people in, in my line of work, can you find people? And the answer is it's very hard. And so um, people are working less hours. Um, and as a result, we, we've got to try and find solutions to those problems. We're talking with the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. John DeYoung. John, how closely are you watching this situation with African swine fever in Southeast Asia and the efforts in this country to keep it out? Um, we are watching it quite closely. Um, I was at a meeting at Kansas State University in May uh, where they celebrated 100 years of Chinese people being educated in veterinary medicine in the United States. There was a, there's a current U.S.-China joint DVM program where four people, and it's only four, but it's still more than zero, come to the United States every year to receive DVM degrees and then go back to China to primarily get into the educational system as professors at the university teaching veterinary medicine. A hundred years ago was the first person, and that led to veterinary medicine as we know it in the Western world um, getting over to, um, to that part of the world and making a difference, and that, that's just huge. So um, it, it's been monitor the African flying fever by us because of the issues that we face. So taking it a step further, um, <clears throat> hold on one sec, please. Um, I'm sorry about that. We were watching, and when I was out there, I was told that roughly 22% of the uh, swine population in um, China had been decimated, and some provinces were up to 45 and 50%. When I spoke to the people offline um, at the meeting, they said the numbers are actually a little bit higher. The United States, thank God, we've got a very, very well-educated and disciplined veterinary workforce that is well-trained in looking out for African swine fever. Um, I came back from a meeting in Europe also in the last month. They're also being very diligent, keeping an eye on things. But I think we've got all of the tools in place to keep it at bay. So we're doing everything that's possible. The great unknown is, is that enough? Only time will tell. Only time will tell. You're absolutely correct, sir. So a disease like that, why do you think it's been so hard for them to get it under control? It seems to be spreading rather than being contained. I'm sorry, could you say again? Why do you think that's been so hard for them to get under control? It seems to be spreading rather than being contained. Um, I can't really answer that well because I'm not fully um, versed in what kind of uh, 
practice management they have in China, but my guess is it's because of the fact that there are fomites that can transfer from farm to farm, people that are not taking care of, um, of themselves with proper hygiene to, to try and limit it as much as they can. And so as a result, it has spread. I'm, I'm under the impression from what I've been informed that the, uh, the problem is now much more under control than it had been previously because they realize um, what profound effects it might have um, economically as well as um, every other possible um, area of concern. So I think things are under control somewhat now in China. I know that in Europe, several countries are, are being very, very careful to monitor what's going on. I believe that Czechoslovakia has done a very good job of completely eradicating um, any kind of African swine fever from, from hitting their um, population. Um, so <clears throat> it's something that we have to be vigilant about, be very, very careful to monitor what's going on, and uh, do everything we can to, to keep the uh, food supply safe and help economic conditions as well. Yeah, with no vaccine available, that means uh, prevention Correct. is uh, the number one uh, the goal here to keep it out, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do so. John, always good to talk with you. Sanitation. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks. It'll be sanitation and hygiene like everything else. And, uh, Mike, once again, wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for doing all you're doing. All right. Take care, sir. That is the president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. John DeYoung. Stay with us. Much more to come here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. This is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. 
Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It's time now for a market update here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Ahead of the 4th of July holiday break for the grains, we are trending higher in early trade for the grain and oil seed sector. Trades expected to be quiet today ahead of an early close. The futures have been trending lower so far this week, but corn stabilized yesterday, trended higher in the overnight session too, up about 1.7%. But trade volumes have been somewhat light, according to the wire talk, not Unexpected around the holidays, and it's beginning to feel that way, according to trader comments. Soybean futures trending seven to nine cents higher. November new crop up eight and three quarters, nine oh seven and a half. December corn at four thirty three and three quarters. That's up seven and three quarters. For the wheats, Chicago September up four and a half at five oh seven and three quarters. An hour into the trading day, Kansas City wheat September up four and three quarters, four thirty seven and a quarter. Minneapolis spring wheat September up two at five thirty eight and a quarter. For livestock, the Merck and live cattle futures, the August contract is up sixty at one oh four seventy two. October at one oh six ten, that's up seventy seven cents. Cash cattle activity expected to improve today with the holiday break tomorrow. We could see some cash sales develop on this Wednesday. In feeder cattle, trending ninety-five to a dollar two lower. August down a dollar at one thirty-seven thirty-seven per hundredweight. Lean hog futures trending steady to eighty-seven higher. August up eighty-seven at seventy-nine eighty-five. Despite months of efforts to curb an outbreak of African swine fever spreading across China's pig farms, the government on Wednesday saying the situation remains dire. On Wall Street, the Dow up 71, August crude oil in New York up 64. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 800-745-3327, 800-745-3327. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Pressure on agriculture on environmental issues has been growing the last several years and looks to probably intensify in the years to come. Let's talk about that with the CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. Charlie, thank you for being with us. I know uh, it, it, it certainly looks like the, the the public at large and maybe some policymakers uh, 
don't feel that agriculture is doing enough when it comes to reducing uh, its carbon footprint. Now, agriculture has a good story to tell, but there seems to be uh, kind of a, a disconnect here right now. Well, you're exactly right, Mike, and there are a number of things that are that are at play here kind of simultaneously. It's a change in consumer attitudes, consumer, uh, consumer purchasing behavior, uh, the emergence and the growth of the purpose-driven consumer. Uh, we're also seeing that lack of appreciation and awareness of what actually happens on farms, the bias against size and scale of agriculture, and a number of other factors. But let's, uh, let's unpack that a little bit if we can. Um, and, you know, our, our, our trust research from the Center for Food Integrity shows only 30% of consumers strongly agree that U.S. farmers take good care of the environment while 60% are kind of ambivalent and unsure about that question. So that's a, that's a real opportunity for those in agriculture, and that's despite the fact that, as you noted, we've just had remarkable improvements. But one of, the, one of the challenges I think we have is that we really haven't reframed or talked about the improvements in productivity and efficiency and how those actually translate to farming being actually more sustainable. Um, you know, this is a few examples with dairy since the 1940s. Dairies reduced the carbon footprint of every gallon of milk by more than two-thirds. Um, while we continue to increase the amount of pork that we produce over the last 50 years, producers are now using less than 75 or more than 75% less land, 25% less water, and 7% less energy, which is just phenomenal. And wheat farmers, I mean, they've increased yields by more than 25%, are now producing the same amount of wheat on 28% less land with 47% less soil erosion and 12% less irrigated water. So in agriculture, we've historically talked about those as improvements in productivity and efficiency, but we haven't captured and communicated that they actually translate to improvements in sustainability. And I think that's one of the real opportunities we have. The other fundamental change that we're seeing, Mike, is, is really a, a change in the marketplace. This is from a recent Harvard Business Review where 50% of the growth in the consumer packaged goods category from 2013 to 2018 came from sustainably marketed products. Half the growth from consumer packaged goods companies came from sustainably marketed products. So that's an indicator that there is demand because these are companies that would not be marketing those claims if there wasn't demand. Now, in agriculture, there's always the debate about, well, are these companies creating demand by, by putting sustainable focused labels on the package or is there actual demand? And I think what this information would show is, is there's actual demand. Now, are they going to promote that and capture that by putting those claims on their products? Absolutely. I think the opportunity is for agriculture to be much more engaged in that conversation um, because products that had a sustainability claim on pack accounted for over 16% of the market in 2018 up from 14% in 2013 and delivered nearly $114 billion in sales, up 29% from 2013. So this is a trend. It's not a fad. And so what that means to agriculture, to me, from, from my perspective, is how do we capture the value in that and really capture the value of what agriculture has done and is doing to improve sustainability, largely by, coming, by becoming more productive. So there's so much discussion on this topic that that's about agriculture, but is is agriculture really involved in those discussions, or, or are they just being talked about and just dealing with what uh, people want to force on agriculture through regulation or whatever it may be? 
Well, it's a great question, and I think there are efforts that are taking place. U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, the various commodity groups, CFI and others are all helping to try and tell that sustainability story, but not yet at a sufficient volume and not consistently enough. We also don't have enough internal alignment. Uh, we still have a lot of those in agriculture who are struggling with this whole concept of sustainability and viewing it as a threat instead of an opportunity. And obviously, there's downsides as well. Clearly, if, if, if additional requirements are mandated that increase the cost of production without any increased value, then those costs just have to be borne by farmers, and, and those in agriculture are naturally suspicious and concerned about that. But I think the real opportunity is to do a much better job of communicating what's already been done, because we've made such phenomenal progress, and we continue to make progress every single year. But we do know that those global brands that are focused on continuing to grow market share, continuing to meet consumer demand, are going to increase their interest in sustainability. This is not an issue that's going to go away. So we really need to continue to improve and, and uh, both our commitment and our execution to telling the story of what's happening with sustainability in agriculture today. We're talking with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, traditionally, historically, uh, there's been a trust factor that the public's had with farmers. Is that still the case, or has that eroded in recent years? Well, it's a great question, Mike. And what we see is there's still a great deal of trust in farmers, but not necessarily a trust in farming. And that helps people understand that, yes, the size and scale of agriculture has changed, but the commitment of farmers to do what's right has never been stronger. What our research has shown is that just one in five respondents believe that small farms will put their interest ahead of public interest, but that number more than doubles when you talk about a large farm. So there's a perception that profit will, will override public interest and in doing the right thing as farms get larger and we continue to use more technology. Well, farms are getting larger and we are using more technology, but we can overcome that bias against size and scale by helping people understand that our commitment to do what's right has never been stronger. So we've got to be more engaged in telling that story and in communicating and, and having that conversation with both the supply chain as well as with consumers to help them understand what we're doing. And there are a lot of innovative operations that are doing that today in terms of social media, taking advantage of, of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I mean, there's just a whole number of farmers that are doing that and doing it well. We just have to encourage more of that and then also encourage more direct supply chain engagement so that those in the food system understand what's already been done and that agriculture continues to be committed to operating more sustainably every single year. How big a factor is the big is bad feeling? How much of a factor is that among consumers? I'd say that's probably the largest driver among consumers. Um, like again, that belief that the larger the farm, the larger the food company, the more likely they are to put profit ahead of public interest. And people understand and want farmers and they want farms to be profitable. They don't have an objection to being, uh, for agriculture being profitable. They want farms to be profitable. What they're concerned about is that profit will supersede every other motive. Now, anybody who's had any exposure to farmers understands that is absolutely not the case. If they were putting profit first, they'd probably be in some kind of other business. But we have to do a better job of communicating our commitment to do what's right for people, animals, and the planet every single day. Uh, because that's where the skepticism breeds. When people see things happening on farms, they read about environmental incidents or animal care incidents, 
it drives that skepticism. So that bias against size and scale is really the primary driver that's eroding trust. And the only way to overcome that is to be more engaged and more effective in communicating our commitment to do what's right. Well, we're certainly seeing more and more uh, attention paid to and publicity around advertising campaigns and things like that on certain products saying, our product is better and it's it's produced better and it's it's healthier for you and, and protecting the planet. That seems to be the the way for some of these advertising campaigns, which then makes it sound like anybody else is doing something wrong. Yeah, it does. And the, the absence label claims are challenged. And I think one part of what we have the opportunity to do in agriculture is to reduce the temptation for marketers to go to the dark side and go to the absence label claim by helping people understand the broad-based commitment to sustainability and the fact that everybody involved in agriculture is producing more, using less, every single year. But there will continue to be demand for us to do that. But, Mike, that's something that farmers have done since the beginning of time. We continue to be more productive using fewer resources every single year. This is just going to continue to test our ability to make that happen on an ongoing basis. I think farmers sometimes say, I've, I've seen comments that where they've said, we're tired of being told we have to tell our story, we have to do this and that. But that is part of it now, right? I mean, you have to be involved in that. Yeah, it is, unfortunately. I mean, it, it, you know, people didn't go into farming to, to be necessarily engaged in public relations or communications or social media, and I certainly appreciate that. But it is absolutely a requirement if we want to change the outcome. Um, it would be terrific if we could simply rely on others to carry that message and tell the story for us, but there's no one who's going to carry it with the same credibility as the men and women who are involved in farming every single day. And so we really need them to be involved and to commit to being engaged in whatever way is comfortable for them, whether it's speaking in their local community, having a Facebook page for the farm, posting photos on Instagram. There are a lot of people that are out there and doing it really, really well, but we need more. And we also have to do a better job of engaging with the food system and that's where our associations and checkoff organizations can continue to play a growing role in helping the food system understand that shared commitment of all of those in agriculture to operate in a sustainable way every single day on the farm. It's a critical issue, and we started off by saying uh, this uh, pressure is going to intensify. It's not going to, to go away. Charlie, thank you very much. Always good to talk with you. Mike, always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, joining us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92 and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100 and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 
180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had this toe. Everything's changed. I had this toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture... Pressure on agriculture, on environmental issues, has been growing the last several years and looks to probably intensify in the years to come. Let's talk about that with the CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, Charlie Arnott. The price of a 13-item bass ice, five increase. The public at large and maybe some policymakers uh, don't feel that agriculture is doing enough when it comes to reducing uh, its carbon footprint. Now, agriculture has a good story to tell, but there seems to be a, kind of a, a disconnect here right now. Well, you're exactly right, Mike, and there are a number of things that are, that are at play here kind of simultaneously. It's the change in consumer attitudes, consumer, uh, consumer purchasing behavior, the emergence and the growth of the purpose-driven consumer. We're also seeing that lack of appreciation and awareness of what actually happens on farms, the bias against size and scale of agriculture, and a number of other factors. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me. Your handy chains, 
dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. There was a study released recently comparing organic milk with conventional milk, and the study says and claims that the the non-organic milk tested positive for pesticides, illegal antibiotics, and growth hormones. When I get reaction to that from the dairy industry, joining us now is the Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, Clay Detlefson. Clay, thank you for joining us. Uh, What do you make of this study? Mike, it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, At this point, we don't buy it. Uh, We don't believe that the results that have been provided are accurate. Um, They fly in the face of government test results that have been going on for years and years and years, Uh, and it's just very unusual that these results could be valid. So we're questioning the methodology and the proficiency of the folks that uh, performed the testing. What do we know about who uh, authored this study or, or funded it, or, or do we know anything about where it's coming from? Yes, the Organic Trade Association uh, has been very transparent in stating that they, in fact, did fund this study, uh, and the work was performed by Emory University. So how does the dairy industry then respond to something like this? Well, we've reached out to a a number of scientists around the country and uh, gotten their perspectives on this. In addition, uh, we have had conversations with the Food and Drug Administration, and we will be going in to meet with the Food and Drug Administration next week. Uh, They are currently reviewing the study and uh, suspect they have a lot of questions for the study's authors. And, you know, we're all going to work to get to the bottom of this and figure out what went wrong with this study because we do not believe it is an accurate representation of what's going on in the dairy industry. Do we know how large a sampling size this was? Yes, they collected 35 half gallons of milk from around the country using volunteers, uh, which they were basically free to pick and choose where they picked up milk samples from. In addition to the conventional, the 35 conventional milk samples, they also picked up 34 half gallons of organic milk. And then who tested so it? Was it not a very large sample size, to say the least. Right. And then who, de- who did the testing of it? Emory University performed the okay. uh, laboratory work. So there so there be a lot of questions about the size of the sampling, where the samples came from, and, and the actual analysis of it then. That is correct. You know, they have to be using validated methods. 
uh, and the laboratory personnel have to be proficient at those, and we do not know the methodologies, um, so we'll, we'll be definitely looking into that. We also question why it took nearly four years for these results to be revealed. The testing is not that difficult to complete, so, you know, we're, we're questioning, you know, why, you know, a three-year wait beyond what we would normally expect, you know, the results to be made available. So you'll be gathering information on this, and then you'll be responding to this at some point in the future then? Absolutely. You know, the public you know, has a right to know the facts, and, you know, what we're seeing with this study is, is highly unusual, and quite honestly, it just doesn't make any sense. But as we've seen a lot of times when something like this comes out, uh, the initial report or the initial charge, if you will, uh, gets more attention than than the follow-up does. That's kind of how this works. So that will be a challenge you'll have to deal with. Absolutely. But we were fortunate in that uh, this was first reported by uh, USA Today, uh, and they put the story out there the same day the study was released. And then very quickly, um, they were contacted by uh, an academic who called into question uh, the test results. And the USDA, USA Today quickly added a paragraph uh, expressing skepticism about this study. So that helped enormously. Explain for us, Clay, the, the efforts that are, and the procedures that are used in, uh, in conventional milk. Uh, to make sure these things uh, that uh, this study says are in the milk, the, tell us about the steps that are taken to keep those things out. Well, for one thing, 100% of all milk tankers are tested for beta-lactam, basically penicillin-type drug residues. That's 100% every tanker. If the tanker is uh, determined to be positive for a beta-lactam test result, that tanker is dumped, and the farm that is responsible for that being uh, a, a positive tanker is basically assessed the cost of it. And if things like that happen on a repeated basis, the farm will eventually be put out of business or the milk will no longer be picked up. And, and the study did report a positive for amoxicillin, which is a beta-lactam, uh, and we, we question that. Um, you know, if we've got 100% of the milk tankers that are tested for it, how could this have possibly gotten through the system? Uh, in addition, with all the commingling of milk that goes on, even if you somehow had a positive tanker that got into the system, which is pretty much implausible, with all the mixing that goes on, there should have never been a positive. So we just don't even believe that result. Well, we look forward to getting uh, the rest of this story, and uh, when those findings uh, come through and you get more information, Clay, we'll look forward to getting that information out to, uh, to everyone. So thanks for being with us and uh, pointing out some things to question about this study, and we'll look forward to the final results. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. All right, Clay Detlifson, he is the Senior Vice President, Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation. And with that, we wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone.
Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. 